Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. When you are in a prison, you are on one level, you're infantilized because you have no autonomy. There is a time to get up, there is a time to get your, well, your milk is delivered to the cell. You know, you have to report to the rec room for work at 8.15, etc. The work party goes off at 9 o'clock. I mean, it's all, the prison likes to know where everybody is at every minute of the day. And if they're not out doing something, then they're in the cell and they're locked up. And that is the punishment. It deprives you of your freedom. You have no autonomy. There's very little you can do. You mean you can either have, you know, you can have the vegetarian menu or the normal menu. I mean, you can make choices like that, but really your life is like, you know, Ford said, you can have any colour you want for your car except, you know, Mm. as long as it's black, that's the kind of life you're leading. Everything is worked out. However, the only place where you are free is in your head. That's where you're autonomous. That's why writing is so important and that's where reading is so important. Because once you read... You enter the world of the book, you become mesmerized, you leave the place where you are, and you enter the kind of magical, makey-uppy, you know, film projected on the back of your forehead kind of world that we all know reading induces. What is the price of artistic ambition, and does reading and writing have a redemptive quality? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with some outstanding writing talent, playwrights and screenwriters of tremendous vitality, honesty and punch. Novelist, biographer and theatre critic John Lair talks the legends of American theatre, the mystery of talent and its not-so-pleasant side, as highlighted in his engrossing new book, Joyride, The Lives of Theatricals, published by Bloomsbury. And is all reading and writing therapeutic? Carlo Gebler talks me through The Projectionist, The Story of Ernest Gebler, published by New Island. This is a show about pain and trauma, reconciliation and the past, intuition, salvation and the creative instinct. But first, can great performance be preserved? Theatre, said American playwright Sam Shepard, is a place to bring stuff from your life experience. You send this telegram and then you get out. John Lair is an American theatre critic and biographer and a writer of immense power, insight and emotion. From 1992 to 2013, John was a senior drama critic for the New Yorker magazine. John's notable reads include Tennessee Williams' Mad Pilgrimage of the Flesh, the biography of Bert Lair, Coward, the playwright, and Hot to Trot. Well, John's latest publishing venture, Joyride, Lives of the Theatricals, details his 50 years of theatre going. And boy, does it make for deeply psychological reading. It's raw, tense and hugely gripping. In Joyride, John writes, We go to the theatre not just to lose ourselves, but to find ourselves. Human behaviour confounds us, worlds fail us, and pain defies description. But certain plays can crystallise the shifting moods of the culture or clarify the conundrums of life. Well, I had the very great pleasure of talking to John on the publication of Joyride. I asked John, is it fair to describe Joyride as a biography of talent and the price of fame? Well, 
Yes, in the sense that that's the question of the price of fame is something that I'm always looking at in all the people that I choose. But these are, I've set out to, to really write pen portraits of the people who I think are the defining talents in the theatrical world, or at least who speak to me. And in this particular book, I've written, I've written over 40 profiles, but these are really only the profiles of playwrights and directors, and my reviews of their work is a way of showing the synergy between the lives and the sort of moral evolution of these artists and how it expresses themselves in the plays uh, that they make. So it's, it's meant to sort of give people who are interested in the theater uh, a more of a context to see the plays that they see. That We usually see the, a play in the context of no context. And uh, this just makes it, I hope, more interesting by seeing uh, into the lives of the theatricals, if you see what I mean. Now, you say that a play requires the audience to work, to contend with eloquence and with ambiguity, to think. That's right. I mean, that's the thing that separates the play from a movie, in a sense. I mean, in a movie, the movie comes to you, and it can be stimulating, but you're not doing the same kind of work as you are when you're in uh, in the audience of a, of a live event, because the director in a movie shows you what where to look and what to see. Your gaze is controlled. In, in, in a play, there's much more. The, the audience, first of all, is responsible for more of the meaning. And also, if an audience is good, it really helps the play and vice versa. So the audience, the, there is a need for an alert audience that, to help make the play good, so to speak. And uh, there's a different chemistry there. In a film, the film is going to be the same no matter who is in the audience or if nobody's in the audience. But that's not true of a play. And so that, that's another difference. And I quote Tula Bankhead in the book, who was approached by a young, avid girl who wanted to be an actress. And Bankhead said, don't be an actress, darling, be an audience. Part of my sort of action here is to sort of give people more information in order to make them better audiences. Would it be fair to say that Harold Pinter changed your life? I know you said that homecoming changed oh, yeah, your life. He absolutely, he absolutely did. I mean, I remember, I still remember going to uh, the play, when uh, the homecoming, when it was done on Broadway, and seeing it and just being, I mean, I wouldn't say I understood it. I didn't understand it, but I, I was drawn to it because I knew that there was a sort of truth there that I was not getting. And so I went back the next day to the matinee. I bought the book, which was available. And I I actually plotted the groupings as it was going on. And what it showed me was something that, I mean, I was only 25 at the time, something like that. But it showed me that people spoke with more than one language, uh, that, that there was the language of speech and the language of silence, or that there was a subtext, so to speak, to words. And that to me, simple as that sounds, that was mind-blowing. That was just exploded something for me. And also that the drama in Pitter's plays was also the drama of objects and how objects on the stage indicate relationships and feelings. I mean, the position of a chair in relationship to another chair would be an obvious example. But this other language, which, of course, he, Pinter, as an actor, was uh, just simply taking the knowledge of what actors know that an object over the course of a play can change its meaning, can take on other meanings. This sort of magic is something that Pinter was pointing out and using, and I was getting, or, or was opening my eyes. And I actually, I was teaching night school, 
and Hunter College. And I, I wrote to Pinter and said, I would like to teach your play. He was in New York. I didn't know him. I sent the, the letter to the... And, you know, the thing that blew me away is that Pinter answered me. And I went to see him. And I met him at a bar next to the theater, and he was dressed in his usual black. But this was before he was really famous, and he was really accessible. And, you know, I asked the sort of Tyro questions that, you know, you would ask if you're 25 or 6 about the play and its meaning. And I remember talking about Lenny and the, when, when he holds up the glass and, and says, take a long drink from this glass, a long, cool drink. Or, she, no, I think, no, I think Ruth says it to Lenny. And talking about all the meanings of that. And, of course, what Pinter was trying to make, Pinter doesn't know the answer to the question of meaning. He just raises the issues. He, he, these are unconscious creations to some large degree. He doesn't start with a theme and say, okay, I'm going to create characters that make this point. These characters emerge in his out of his imagination. He sort of follows them around. And at that point, I didn't understand that, really. I mean, because I like we all had been to university, you know, we were creatures of reason and analysis, not creatures of the unconscious or poetic. So, it, you know, it took me a long time to understand that, I mean, the questions were coming at it from the wrong point of view, but it really opened my, it really opened me up to a whole, all sorts of feelings about language and uh, stage pictures, you know, it was great. Now you say Harold Pinter always had a sense of danger about him. What did you mean? I understand what you mean by danger, but how did that actually pan out? Well, in life, uh, I knew Pinter pretty well. For about five years, his son rented a room from my in my, my apartment. And also, I lived above in the same building as Carol Rice, the film director, who directed French Lieutenant's Woman. So I saw Pinter a lot. To talk to Pinter was dangerous because he was so explosive. He seemed to have no membrane to sort of separate his moments of anger. We all sometimes flare up, but he was very thin-skinned. You really had to watch it. But John, reading through most of your profiles, a lot of these great playwrights and theatre directors seem to have major anger management issues and it certainly (laughs) seem to be incredibly precious. Can I ask you, you say writing a profile has a lot in common with tailoring. The more sitting, the better the fit. And then you say access, emotional availability and trust are crucial to the result. How did all of that transpire then with David Mame? Because he seems of all your profiles possibly the most challenging. That's well read there, Susan, because, yes, he was challenging. He challenged me from the very first in the sense that he, he, he did it in, a, in an apparently friendly way, but he gave me a, a scout knife, which is quite challenging. Be prepared, I think, was the uh-huh. scout knife, that, wasn't that, it? That's correct. What happened was, when I write to pitch a profile, one of the things that's very clear in the letter and that they agree to do is not only to spend a certain amount of time, but I say that there's a certain amount of psychological inquiry into this. So that when they agree to it, they've agreed to a whole procedure. And Mammon is the only profile where we began, and in the first hour or so of our conversation, I, it came around to talking about he and his father, because his father, who was a labor lawyer and a very tough and exacting man, who Mamet really had a big Oedipal struggle with, and Mamet w- said he wouldn't talk about it. But and clearly said, his father had a massive impact on his career. Uh, absolutely. I mean, one of the things I wanted to find out was where that ear for dialogue developed. And he said over the over the dining room table because his father was so exacting and and bullying, frankly. He and he was always had an ear out for attack. 
So when we got to that point in the interview, which was very early, it was in the first day, I think, Mamet said, uh, I won't talk about her. And I said, but David, uh, you know, we've uh, agreed that that was going to... And he said, yeah, I know, but I'm not going to talk about it. So I, I turned off the tape recorder and said, well, then that's it. We'll have to stop. And so the way we got around that was uh, Mamet's sister agreed to talk about the father and give me the information, but Mamet would not. And it took me... Uh, uh, Mamet is a fascinating guy and actually a lovely guy, but very, very in some ways, almost slightly on the sort of autistic scale. It sounds odd because he's so brilliant. But in certain social, he's very brusque. And he'll say things like, goody, goody gumdrops, if you say something, or, you know, something that's sort of sour or ironic. And it sort of throws you, it, it puts you on, the back, on your back foot. And so in the case of David, it, these profiles take about three or four months. And it took me about three months of, the, of those four until I really got him. When I figured it out. But it was really uh, like that knife that he gave me. It was really uh, a test almost that I had to go through. He's not one of the world's most trusting human beings. And, you know, fair enough. But this was the hardest, I think. And the nicest thing for me was after the profile came out, I, I live in London, but I, when I was doing the drama critic job, I would go to New York for two weeks of every month for 20 years to be the senior drama critic. And when I got back to New York into my office, there was a package from Mamet. Now Mamet has, uh, or had, because he sold it, the nicest writing room. It was actually a bungalow, a cabin. They had a pot-bellied stove and had a beautiful canoe paddle with a pike painted on it, which I admired because I'm, I'm a fisherman. And when I got back to my office and opened uh, the present, it was from Mamet. He had gotten a shingle of an 18th century church, and the man who had painted the pike, he had asked to paint two trout, which now sit in my dining room. But I thought it was it's typical of him. He's both extremely thoughtful and very spiky. It's, he runs those extremes, and you know you can see a lot of that in the plays. And it was a it's an interesting exercise. Yeah, tense. I, I imagine it was unbelievably tense. I think he described him as prickly. Yeah. But John, I was very interested when you quote Sidney Lumet, who was one of his friends, and Sidney had said it to you in an interview that injury has given David enormous energy, and he's a sense of being screwed. But he has used that in tremendous ways in both his stage productions and also in terms of his filmmaking. I don't know what to say to that, Susan. I mean, the sense of betrayal, the sense of threat, I think it comes more from childhood than anything else. And he's made, he makes stories out of that, you know, out of that. You know, he's drawn to those uh, scenarios, you know. And also the competition and the, the brutality of competition. I mean, his family, he, uh, Mamet, came out of a very upwardly mobile, succeed-or-die American immigrant family. And so the competition and the ruthlessness of it and the brutality of it is a big theme of his. And the barbarousness of, of it, a lot of his best plays uh, have that. Can I ask you um, about Tony Kushner? Mm. How did you get so close to him? Because he strikes me as quite a difficult man. You've got to remember that I was hired by Tina Brown to take the theatre reporting of, from out of the reading room and into the green room, so to speak. And uh, I'm, I'm from the theatre world, and by the time I got to The New Yorker, I'd written two or three books, and these had had a lot of, of visibility within the theatre community anyway. And so people 
sort of often know my work. So that when, when, when we're going, when I'm meeting these people, I'm not meeting them necessarily as an entirely anonymous person. And in Tony's case, I was reviewed and I put the review in Joyride, a perfect example of the insider thing that I was trying to do and change the sort of habitual kind of just reporting the plot of the play that most reviews have is in, I went to California to see Angels in America when it was first performed, when both plays were first performed at the Mark Taper. And I interviewed Tony outside the theater, talked to him about do you have any magical things that he did? Because, of course, I know that that's, writers are full of that kind of stuff. And, yeah, he did. He had to sing the Begin from beginning to end without mistake. And then he had to have a Chinese meal. In his case, he had to have two because it was two plays. So then I reported, then I reviewed the play uh, in the same article. After the play, I went backstage and saw him in long shot, so to speak, and also quoted from a letter he'd written to the cast which said, and how can an angel come to earth but with struggle, etc. And so that review, which Tony loved because I loved the play, but also because it was all-encompassing, I was a great advocate of the play, probably the greatest in the New York area. And so your question is, how do you get so close? And the answer is, you get that way when you're talking to people and they know that you, you want to really see them And in your case, you got him to admit that he was somewhat of a theological writer. One of the things I was very touched by was learning about his relationship with his mother and that very much her ambition settled on him. He he said to you that when his mother died, he realised a certain degree of his ability to take pleasure in his accomplishments was gone. And I think that most people, it was very humanising and very open thing to say that how we the joy we get from our parents joy in us is absolutely is, the all defining gaze it is parental eyes. and I find that um, I find it very touching to read yeah so well I mean you know that's what I'm going for what I'm looking for for in each story. It will always be different. I mean, everybody has an official story, especially very successful people. They have a, a narrative. But I'm, I'm not listening to it. I'm listening to it, but I'm not looking there. I'm looking for the thing in them that seeks expression. In other words, that what they want to express, get out of themselves, so to speak. And in Arthur Miller's case, empathy was a big driver for him. You write very interesting stuff about his uncle, Manny Newman, and how that very much, his life experience informed Death of a Salesman. Yeah, well, well, that's what Death of a Salesman really shows. I mean, his uncle Manny, who committed suicide, it has to be said, he was almost comically envious of Arthur and his success. And instead of dealing with Arthur's success, would always remind Arthur of how well his own sons were doing. And that's what goes on in Death of a Salesman. And what Death of a Salesman is usually seen as a sort of tale about American success or lack of it. But really what it's about is it's not – Willie Loman isn't a failed salesman. What his real failure is is he, he never has a life because he's always living in the grip of uh, invidious comparison. He's envious. And what it, the, the, the play is brilliant in, in dramatizing that. I mean, I'm talking to you in my study, and right here on the mantelpiece is a note I have from really, the, I suppose, the most validating thing that I ever got in the time that I was with the New Yorker, oh, a card from Miller. In this particular piece, which is the opening piece to Joyride, I go with Miller on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of Death of a Salesman to the cabin 
he built, having never built a cabin in his life, in order to write Death of a Salesman. And he wrote the first act of Death of a Salesman in one night in that cabin, just as he he vowed he'd write the minute he'd finished the cabin, and he did. And the note says that this piece, which really goes into the gestation of the play and how it changed, he says is the best thing ever written about his stuff. And I'm really... I'm really chuffed at that. I was very surprised to read that his partner of 30 years, um, Inga Marat, she never visited that cabin. That no, struck me as very odd. <laughs> You're a very good reader. <laughs> <laughs> I read. Yeah, but, but yes, I was surprised at that. But I mean, I think part of it, you know, they had another life and she was, uh, you know, it was interesting that the, and the, that the first house which he bought uh, in Roxbury was not that far. It's only two miles away. But uh, no, it, it was odd. And uh, we went back and, and to see that also to report how she responded to all of that and you know that was a lucky break journalistically what was it like observing the rehearsals of Ingmar Bergman because reading through the lines it must have been riveting exhilarating but also a little psychotic you say somewhere in in your profile that humiliation may be Bergman's theme and that you say that he didn't like surprises that he was quite a control freak and he said something like on the lines of if he didn't create he didn't exist he has had so many marriages so many different children so many different affairs and mistresses the guy is dynamite in so many different ways but I'd say he's frightening or was frightening to meet well, no. Well, he wasn't. First of all, you know, I said I was a fisherman. I had to fish to get Bergman. I, I went over there to write a profile about Bergman, but I never, he's the only person I, I never thought I would meet him because I sold the idea of a profile of Bergman, but there was no way to get to Bergman. So I, I, what I did was I took three trips to Sweden to review plays of his and wrote the reviews. And two of those three plays are two of the greatest productions I've ever seen in my life. I mean, and I don't speak Swedish, but they were just extraordinarily sophisticated, subtle, uh, extraordinary. The misanthrope comes to mind. It's just one of the great productions I've ever seen. And I was interviewing around Bergman because Bergman's theater, which is called the Kunglinga, which is the sort of state theater of Sweden, and his father's church, his father was a minister, are about a hundred yards away from each other. You could throw a baseball from one to the other. But, you know, what Bergman did was to make a religion of his own in the theater, something that was carnal and joyous and not steely and cold like his father's. But anyway, I was sent for. I didn't expect to see Bergman, and suddenly Bergman, who was head of the theater, said, Mr. Bergman will see you. And so I went to see him, and I had about an hour sitting in his small, knee-to-knee, I remember, uh, in his small room. The respect that he had in the theater, the aura of genius that surrounded him, that was scary. He was actually very nice and agreeable and interesting to talk to. But apropos of the control issue, the production that I said said was so wonderful, The Misanthrope, was scheduled to come to the Brooklyn Academy in the fall. And when Bergman came back to the theater from his island to rehearse the actors to take them to Brooklyn, when they ran the play, he noticed that the actors had changed some of his blocking, and they'd made improvements. And Bergman canceled the entire production, just canceled it. You know, and that shows you the degree of control and insistence on his 
vision that he had. I mean, it was extraordinary. But he's also a, a psychologically extremely shrewd. I, I was very interested in the fact that he talked a lot about when, and this is to me fascinating, when to give an actor a note. He was very sort of shrewd and strategic about it. And he would choose, it was a bit, again, like trout fishing. He would choose not only not to talk to actors very much, but then when he did talk to them, to choose very specific words. Because the actor, he said, had to own the idea. In other words, they had to absorb the idea and agree it and make it their own. Otherwise, it would never be consistent within the production, you know. And that's what he was after. Do you think it's fair to say that those... Like if I look at all the different um, playwrights, directors and certainly the production values that were brought into the productions that you profile, that it's all about courage because these directors' lives read about courage, courage oh, to speak I think, up. I think the whole business of theatre is about courage. It's, I mean, actors are athletes of the spirit as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, you know, the productions that I report in Joyride are really the ones that gave me joy. They're extraordinary. They're how I remember my time in the world almost, you know. They're really brilliant. And the amount of effort and revision and focus that goes into these things, no one will know. The audience just gets the result, which is full of aplomb and uh, elegance. But to achieve that that ease and that uh, perfection is takes just an enormous. I mean, I don't know if the word heroic is right, but you know, in terms of endeavor, it, it, it's Herculean. You know. And also, which comes across quite clearly in Joyride, is that it comes at an enormous price. Whether we theatre goers are sitting at a wonderful performance and we learn more about humanity or the universe or whatever it is by going to the play. I wonder at the end of the day what these great directors, playwrights and so on learn. Is it about sacrifice? Well, you know, I think that's a really good question, and it's a question that I always am looking at in all these people, but it goes back to my own family and my own father. My experience of the price of fame is that other people are, are the price that the famous pay for their success, you know. But the, I think that younger stars or more psychologically aware stars, the, the struggle is the struggle between talent, serving your talent, which is, you know, your gift, and serving your family and your community. And some people handle that miserably. I would say Tennessee Williams was an example of that. And some people try to live in the world as well as live in their talent. I would say Kushner and Miller were examples of that. Or someone like, I just profiled uh, Julianne Moore, and she is able somehow miraculously to have a career which is honorable and yet honor her responsibilities as a human being. And I think that one feeds the other. But uh, it's really hard. You have to be pretty solid to have that. Generally speaking, the price of a person's success is the people around them, you know, who don't really get the focus or attention of the artist who is always somehow communicating with his own talent and his drive, you know. was American theatre critic and biographer John Lehrer. Joyride, Lives of the Theatricals is published by Bloomsbury and retails for in around €23 in hardback. 
Okay, let's break to some music, and when we get back, I'll be asking, has literature lost its value? With writer, memorist, and teacher, Carlo Gebler. Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Okay, here's a question for you. Can writing and reading heal emotional wounds? Carlo Gebler is one of Ireland's most celebrated, prolific and emotionally charged writers. Born in Dublin in 1954 to two prominent authors, Ernest Gebler and Endo O'Brien, Carlo spent over 23 years as a writer-in-residence at McGabry Prison in County Antrim, where he headed up the Prisoners' Book Club. Carlo has also taught creative writing at Trinity College Dublin and Queen's University Belfast. Carlo's notable reads include My Father's Watch, How to Murder a Man, The Dead Eight, The Cure and The Siege of Derry. Well, in his latest biography, The Projectionist, The Story of Ernest Gebler, Carlo writes, After my father's cremation, all the mourners went to the Shelburne Hotel. Our table was covered with a starched white cloth. The cutlery was solid and heavy. The plates and glasses were bright and gleaming. After the funeral, it was salutary to be with these objects. Food was now eaten. Wine was drunk. My wife, Tyga, and my brother, Sasha, talked. The subject was my father and the subjectivity of one's memories. My memories of my father were treadbare and mostly miserable. My brothers were not. But that was often the way, wasn't it? My wife said. One child could be happy while another was unhappy, though they lived in the same house at the same time with the same people. She didn't add that this was what makes the whole business of family truth so slippery. But the implication was there in her words. I decided because I finally felt free to put into practice what I always had at the back of my mind to do, which was to write a book about him and me, a book that would tell our story. Well, a couple of months ago, I spent an inspiring afternoon with Carlo at the West Cork Literary Festival. I asked him about a very curious sentence he wrote in his last memoir, Father and I, where he wrote, You can't change the past, but with understanding, you can sometimes draw the poison out of it. Well, that quotation is from Father and I, Mm. and that is a book as well it does exactly what it says on the Mm. tin so to speak it's about my relationship with my father which wasn't um, entirely positive I know from all sorts of different experiences including the experience of teaching memoir and working in a prison where I worked a number of prisoners who also wrote about their experience Mm. that we have our life experience which is or can be desolating or destabilizing Mm. or atomizing and the recapitulation and representation in a written form of 
damaging events can or will make you feel better. I mean, people derisively say, oh, God, all writing is therapy. Actually, yes, all writing is therapy because there's nothing like in a world that is full of chaos creating order, the order of arranging words in the right way in order to say what you mean and mean what you say. All writing, in that sense, satisfies a deep need to create order. But memoir writing, in particular, by organising in a truthful way, a personally truthful way, material, narrative, biographical material, and structuring it, makes you feel better Mm. because you feel you've got it into some sort of order. So when I wrote that line at the end of Father and I, that was what I was talking about, where you can take